This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Emeritus Professor of Politics, Judith Brett. Professor Brett is one of Australia's foremost political biographers. She was a professor of politics, political biography, and political history at La Trobe University. She remains committed to engage political research, bringing the fruits of her inquiry to the general public through books written for a broad readership and through the media. She's written a number of award-winning books, including in 2017, The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, which in 2018 won the National Biography Award in Australia. It's very timely today to be discussing her latest book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. It's published by Text Publishing in 2019, and it's available in bookshops, online, or as an e-book. I highly recommend you check it out. But anyway, we're going to talk a little bit about it now um, and also in relation to the recent U.S. election. So, uh, Professor Judith Brett, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, pleasure's all ours. Um, now, let's just get started. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting? Well, after... Um... I finished The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon and it was out. My publisher at Text, a man called Michael Haywood, who was a terrific editor, uh, came to me and he said, Judy, my publisher's nose is twitching. Uh, Trump has just won the US election. Uh, Brexit, uh, you know, just the referendum on Brexit in in the UK. Um, Why have we got compulsory voting? Like in the wake of those two electoral events, if you like, um, lots of people in Australia were saying, look, that couldn't happen here because we've got compulsory voting. And Michael said to me, you know, I'm a well-educated person. I don't really know why we've got compulsory voting, when we got it, what the story is. Can you write a book about it? And I said, oh, really? <laughs> um, because I didn't think there was enough in just the story of compulsory voting. But I said I would do some research over the summer, which I did. And I concluded that compulsory voting was just part of a larger story about the development of the Australian electoral system where at a a number of points Australians opted for, if you like, a majoritarian democratic electoral system. Um, And so I ended up writing a book which is it's partly about how we got compulsory voting, but it's also about a whole lot of other things about the Australian electoral system which are distinctive and which... Um, I guess we feel protect us from the sorts of 
um, might, you know, the sorts of results that the Trump election represented. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, based on your assessment and your book, why do you think that in Australia the compulsory voting system does protect against what's just happened in the last four years under Trump in the US? Well, essentially with voting being compulsory, political parties don't have to mobilise their base in order, you know, to win elections. Um, and if you look, and, and it just doesn't always happen in systems without it, but if you look at what the way things have worked out in the US over recent years, the mobilising of the base has um, often meant that you that that politicians go for very emotive issues around race or sexuality, um, for example, particularly to mobilise the religious right in America, issues like abortion or same-sex marriage. In the in Australia, that the the political parties don't have to do that because everybody's going to vote, and that means the People who are not that interested in politics, who are not that fired up, um, will also vote. And in the literature on compulsory voting, when I started you know, doing the research, I found as early as the middle of the 19th century, people were arguing for compulsory voting as something that protected electoral systems from the zealots of both the right and the left. Um, the, in, in fact, when it was introduced in some countries like Belgium at the end of the 19th century, it was introduced as a protection against working class radicalism because it meant that the respectable middle class would all be at the ballot box as well and, and counterbalance the newly um, mobilised and radicalised working class. So I think uh, that's one of the big advantages that Australians see when we look at the sort of populist demagoguery that, that Trump has has indulged in. But I, um, oh, sorry, go on, go on, sorry. But look, I think there's another um, advantage. Well, I mean, there's a number of advantages. Another one is that um, we know that that when uh, the, the you know government is elected, it's elected because the majority of the electors supported it, not just the majority of those who turned out. And that gives greater um, that gives greater legitimacy to electoral outcomes. Everybody pretty well. We have turnouts of over 90% um, at every federal election. Um, every, you know, the, so your side might win, but you have to um, acknowledge that that's what the majority of the voters, of the, of, the, of, the, of the electors wanted, not just the majority of those who turned out. And the, the third um, consequence or advantage of this, I think, is that the politicians know that uh, everybody has to vote. And that means that they have to throw their net wide when they're casting for votes. They can't say, okay, the poor on the whole, like what we know from systems with voluntary voting is that people who are more marginalised, who are poorer, who have insecure housing, um, who are from recent immigrant groups, that sort of thing, they're much less likely to vote. In a country like Australia, a politician can't assume that. So when they're formulating their policies, they have to take account of the impact of their policies on a much broader range of people than I think is sometimes the case in countries where there's voluntary voting and where they can assume particularly people who are dependent on welfare, for example, um, are less likely to vote. Now, that's so an think, interesting... You know, so I think it makes for a slightly more um, egalitarian 
public policy. So if you look at the problems that um, in the United States where there's no uh, national health system and the problems of trying to get something going there, we didn't have a national health system either until 1975, and it was a fiercely partisan issue. Um, the Liberal Party, which is effectively our Conservative Party, was opposed to it. Um, it was introduced by a Labor government. When they lost, the Liberal Party abolished the uh, the health system. But when, then it, when Labor brought it back and was in for power, it got sort of embedded. And so the Liberal Party, even though they weren't in their hearts, they didn't really want it. They knew that it would be electoral suicide to actually move against it. So I think that's a, a good example of the way more egalitarian policies are supported by compulsory voting. And I think in the book you make this point that this sort of um, ability to protect against the zealots makes the uh, politics a bit more centrist in Australia and there has to be a little bit more negotiation um, and, as you say, representation of wider values can you talk a little bit more about how you know it's come to be this sort of centrist well, it, politics? It means that it means that um, that that like you need to get fifty percent plus one of the vote basically to win to win a in a in a um, to win an electorate. So it means that the people um, who are not as fired up are going to vote. But the other thing I think to say that supports this is that we have a preferential voting system. Now, this is very unusual in the world. Um, some places have what are effectively runoff elections. I think there's a couple of those happening um, for the US Senate. Um, but that means that um, minority parties, voting for a, for a minority party does not is not a throwaway vote as it is in first-past-the-post voting. So that also, I think, pulls the political system towards the centre. It means there's a little bit of trading off around preferences that goes on in the run-up to the election. So no group, a group can um, feel that they can express their views. For example, lots of people will vote Green in Labor Party in areas where, which will return a Labor, um, a Labor member but their preference will end up going to Labor. Uh, but they feel that they're able to express their um, environmental concerns, their concerns about climate change at the ballot box in a way if it was a um, first-past-the-post system uh, to vote Green would be probably in many um, electorates to give the, the seat to the, to the Conservatives. Can you explain a little bit just how the preferential system works, um, especially for listeners perhaps in North America who aren't familiar with preferential voting? Okay, so you get a ballot paper which has the you know the, the various candidates on it, and instead of just putting a one next to the one you like most um, that who you want, you 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 vote down the ballot paper. You know, one, two, three, four, five, uh, and then what happens is during the counting the the candidate that's got the least votes, their preferences get distributed. And so in the, the to win, a candidate has to win 50% plus one of the vote, whereas in a first-past-the-post system, you could win with getting, say, 35, 36% of the vote uh, or 
37% of the vote and the other two get 36 and my maths are not very good there, or with 40% of the vote and the other two, the other two teams say there's three, three parties getting 20% each. Um, so, or, or 30% each, I should say. Uh, so it just means that the, that somebody has to get the support of the majority of, the majority of voters have to express a preference for the winning candidate. Now, what you end up with is not the person who people are most enthusiastic about, but you get the person who is least disliked. In, in And th look, this came in in the um, early 1920s because there was a very strong rural party which was uh, anti-Labor, um, but the, far the farmers wanted to be able to, in a sense, run their own candidates. Uh, the, what they risked in doing this in 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 electorates where there was a, a non-Labor representative already from the Conservative Party was that they risked handing the seat to Labor. Labor might get 40% of the vote, for example, um, and the other two parties would get 30% each. Um, and in a couple of cases that happened. Uh, the solution was preferential voting, uh, which made the seat safe for a non-Labor candidate. Um, and because of that, we've got a, a fairly viable um, rural-based party, which used to be called the Country Party, and that that gives um, people living in the country, um, in the working in the agricultural sector, uh, or living in many regional rural areas, um, th their own candidates, if you like, and their own representatives in in the parliament. Now that's interesting, and it's interesting comparing it to the um, college election system in the US. You just mentioned that you know in Australia we get the least disliked candidate, whereas in the US, you know, we saw in two thousand and sixteen, Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote, and when you know this weekend, we've seen parties in the streets um, when he's been voted out. So I do think there is, you know, there's a lot of merit in your argument talking about how it. Um, Australia's system sort of protects um, democracy. Can you comment a little bit about how um, the... Can I make a comment on that? Oh, yes, I mean, of look, course. Please do. Yeah, yeah, the other thing is, I mean, the electoral college system is something that we don't have at all. It's basically an indirect, it's an indirect electoral method because people are not actually voting directly for the president. They're voting for the electors who will then meet in the electoral college and select the president. Now, when... Um, the, the Australian Constitution was first being developed in the 1890s. There was a suggestion that our Senate would be elected indirectly like that, but it went. It went. We have direct elections. Like if if on the Australian model, people would be voting directly for this for the um, for the president. There wouldn't be this business about the electoral college and how many votes that that meant. So it, it's quite different, I think. This reliance on on indirect voting that you have in the United States presidential elections. And I'm wondering if you can give some analysis of which which system you feel is the most democratic as a result. Well, I think the Australian system is much more democratic than the than the American system. I think the indirect election um, means that the pres that you've got the states if you like in between the people and the president. Um, the um, 
compulsory voting, I think, is much more democratic because it means that governments, whether it be the president or whether this be the case at, you know, the state level in terms of of, of Congress and the Senate or in terms of state legislatures, are elected by the majority of the electors. The other um, big difference between Australia and the United States is that our elections are administered by an impartial electoral commission. Um, it used to be called uh, was an electoral office, but it's now. So the way in which um, people who are party members but who hold office, particular office in, in the states, are able to manipulate rules for the elections uh, doesn't happen here. Um, the Electoral Commission draws up the electoral boundaries so we don't have a problem with gerrymandering. Um, it's done according to legislated principles. Pa politicians and political parties don't, they make submissions about where they want the boundaries to be, but they don't make the final decisions. So in that sense, we don't have any issue with voter suppression because the Australian Electoral Commission does everything it can to make sure that everybody can um, exercise their legal obligation to vote. Uh, so we have plenty of polling booths. We have um, very easy absentee voting. Um, so and, the, and another thing I think that makes our system much more democratic is that we vote on a Saturday, which makes it much easier for people to attend the polls. The Saturday voting was introduced um, before we got compulsory voting um, and it's a day when people, you know, are less likely to be at work. It's much, it was much easier for women to vote. So there are all ways in which I think our system is much more democratic than the um, system in the US. And what about the argument, though, that, you know, people who are apathetic or can't be bothered to vote, why should they be given a foothold in politics? Well, they pay taxes. They're subject to the laws. Um, so they've got a foothold. I mean, they've got a, they've got a stake in the political outcome, whether they know it or not. And, look, there's always going to be, you know, some fools and airheads. But um, my sense is that um, it... The fact that there's compulsory voting makes people, um, you know, more interested. They they do need to form an opinion. Like you, can, I, I should actually make a clarification. You can actually still not vote. What 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 is compulsory is that you have to turn up at a, at a polling booth or put in a postal vote or whatever and have your name crossed off um, the electoral roll. You can then go into the polling booth and what you do in there is secret. So you can do nothing and just put it in the box. You can write a political message. You can do an obscene drawing. Uh, you know, so that's possible. And there's about like about two percent of people do that. Um, there's a there's a what's called an informal vote. That is a vote that doesn't get counted. That's about five percent, uh, and about half of that are sort of deliberate um, under you know destruction of the vote, if you like, and about half are sort of people making mistakes um, in their voting, just putting a one, for example, or putting, you know, uh, something like that, not 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 voting the whole, um, you know, the preferential system. So, uh, I, you know, I, I, it, it's, I know it's an argument that people make, but um, it doesn't sort of bother me because I think people might say, oh, no, we don't care or we don't know, but they will... 
you know, when the when the election is happening, you know, there's media saturation, people are talking about it. People are, if you like, forced to come to some sort of decision. And I think that encourages them to think a bit about politics. The other big advantage, I think, in a country, or another, not that, a big advantage in a country like Australia, which has a very active immigration program, is that when um, new immigrants become Australian citizens, they also acquire the obligation to vote. And because they acquire that obligation, they um, are, if you like, immediately given a stake in the polity. encouraged because through that to find out how our political system works um, and and to form uh, political views and to follow political events. I taught Australian politics um, for many years at a sort of suburban university and and you know the the new when I'd ask the kids you know why are you studying Australian politics they were often about to turn 18, um, which is when they get the right to vote. And many would say, well, because we're about to vote, we want to find out about it. So I think it it acts as an encourager to find out a bit more about the system. But, of course, there'll still be, you know, some dopes who vote. But, you know, there's no systems perfect. And I think that the advantages far outweigh that that minor quibble. And I think uh, we can pick up on this point you made before about majoritarianism Um, and impartial bureaucracy in Australia. So you make a good comparison in the book where you write about in America, you know, there's this favouring of liberty and individual rights over democracy and majorities. I'm wondering if you can just comment on this and how this plays out in the electoral process, perhaps some cultural differences also. Yes. Well, look, liberal democracies, if you like, draw on two strands of deep strands of political thinking. The first of these is liberalism, which is about individual rights vis-a-vis a potentially tyrannical state. Um, and so from that we get things like the rule of law and you know rights-based legislation and, and concerns with freedom, um, religious freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of association, all of the things that were really being fought for in the 17th and the 18th century um, when the United States was first being settled and first developing its political institutions. Um, The other stream, if you like, that that our liberal democracies draw on is is democracy, the, the democratic stream, which is really about majorities having a say in who in who governs in, who, in in the people who make up the government who exercise the authority of the state, and so they are hybrid systems in that sense. And different liberal democracies, if you like, tilt a bit more towards liberalism or a bit more towards democracy. And what I talk about in the book is the way the U.S. system, partly because of you know of its his, the history of when it was settled, tilts a bit more towards liberalism. Um, the Australian system, which was settled in the 19th century um, and when many new settlers came in the middle of the 19th century, uh, when agitation for um, manhood suffrage uh, with the Chartist movement in, in the United Kingdom was, was at its height, has tilted more towards a demo, towards the sort of democratic majoritarian edge. We still, of course, are concerned about the liberal values about people's rights, about checks and balances on the power of the state, 
um, of, but but it, it's not quite the same preoccupation uh, as it is in the United States. Um, people don't hear worry about, they don't use the word tyranny very often if they're thinking about the state. They might think the government's got too much power in some particular area. But on the whole, there's a lot more trust in government, I think, in, in Australia than there is in the United States at, at a deep level. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's interesting. So I think just drawing some of these points together that you've just made, talking about um, this idea of people becoming invested in the electoral process, like you mentioned some of your students and also um, new immigrants coming to Australia. Um can you talk perhaps a little bit more about this educative function, um, especially in relation to you describe it as responsible citizenship um, in your book? Right. Um, oh. Well, look, I mean, it's, it's just that if people have to vote, they've got to make a decision, they have to give it some sort of minimal thought. I suppose that's what that's really all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it. But I do think with the new immigrants, it's really important because it sort of invites them into the polity. It says, you're now a citizen and we take that seriously and you've got now this obligation to vote. Um, and you can't just live um, inside of your own particular sort of ethnic group and just ignore what's going on in the rest of the world, which you know some immigrant groups have always done. Um, historically, but you can't do that in Australia. You have to actually engage um, if I you think, take that citizenship. You can stay a permanent resident, in which case you don't. You don't get the right to vote if you're a permanent resident, which I think is a drawback of our system. I do think we should give permanent residents the right to vote as well, but we don't. I think, and these are really interesting points, um, this idea that, you know, people become invested in, you know, the outcome. So one of the examples that you talk about in the book um, where there wasn't a compulsory vote but there was a nationwide survey and still there was a massive high turnout in relation to the same-sex marriage um, survey. So at the end of 2017, there was a voluntary postal survey held on the question of same-sex marriage and Australians on the electoral roll were asked to mark yes or no whether the law should be changed to allow same-sex couples to marry. Now, can you talk about this voluntary process, especially, you know, as Australians, uh, perhaps you, possibly you could argue are less apathetic than uh, voters in voluntary systems? Look, that was a real um, aberration. I mean, the, it ended up as this sort of, you know, really it should have been a plebiscite, um, yep. but there was a lot of, tension inside of our Conservative Party around the issue of same-sex marriage. There was strong support um, for it amongst the more liberal Conservatives and the more conservative Conservatives were, were strongly opposed to it. So this sort of survey was a was a bit of a dog's breakfast of a, of a political compromise. Uh, I think the hope was that 
people um, that, I mean, in a way, I think what the Conservatives were hoping was that this was an issue which really motivated many um, more conservative, more religiously minded voters, you know, on the model of the way the US polity operates. Um, they thought that people would, you know, that people would be lazy and, and actually, you know, a survey wouldn't have the same drawing power. Um, but there was then massive organisation and mobilisation by supporters of same-sex marriage, particularly to get young people onto the electoral roll and then to get them to vote because you actually had to fill in the form, you had to take it down to the post office, you know, to a post box. Like, so... Um, I think it was. I, th I think that was partly about um, people having the habit of voting, but I think it was also about the particular issue, which for very many younger people was a really, um, you know, a sort of a, a, an issue that they really felt very strongly about. I mean, like recently when one's gone to weddings, um, heterosexual weddings, uh, the couple would make an announcement this was before same-sex marriage became legal, about what their views were about same-sex marriage and how although they were participating in this ceremony, they were really distressed that this same sort of ceremony was not available to um, to non-heterosexual couples. So it was it was a it had high valence, if you like, in a particular age group and particular groups. Um, it became a bit linked in with people's People felt that opponents of same-sex marriage were homophobic um, and, you know, yeah, that's a, a bit also another sort of generational difference, I think, that, 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 that younger people feel very strongly about. So um, it backfired, if you like. And, but the, and the other thing that happened is that enormous effort was made to make sure that people were on the electoral roll because you had to be on the electoral roll in order to participate. So there was, we ended up with, an electoral role which had about 97% of the potential people who could be on it, on it, which was pretty amazing. And there was some concern as well, I understand, about um, having a survey on such a highly salient issue. Can you talk about, you know, what the concerns were? Oh, look, the concerns were essentially that people who were opposed to it um, would be expressing homophobic views in public, that this would cause distress to um, to same-sex couples. Um, that that was what the concern the, the concern was about the public debate, if you like, and that if it went um, if it, if it was rejected, that the the degree of sort of hurt that this would um, inflict on on um, non-heterosexual people. I think that was what the the concern was, and it was, and also there was concern about it being actually a completely unorthodox, um, you know, way of coming to some sort of resolution. Because in fact, what the gov the parliament, it didn't have, like it didn't have any, it didn't bind the parliament in any way at all. Um, the parliament still had to, you know, vote on the legislation, and. Some parliamentarians who were opposed to it, even though their electorate put in massive um, support for the legislation, uh, still didn't vote for it. You know, they like somebody like Tony Abbott, um, who was Eric's prime minister. So, it, in that sense, it was it was a sort of aberrant um, 
cobbled together solution to a, to political problems inside of the governing party at the time. And I don't think we'll see it repeated. Okay. Um, so maybe then I could ask you about how the impartial electoral um, administration of voting works in Australia. Yeah, well, it, it, what we have is um, now an Australian Electoral Commission. It was previously an electoral office. And it, its responsibility under federal legislation, there's federal, you know, electoral laws, um, is to administer the uh, the elections according to that act. Now, I guess another difference with the United States, which I didn't mention before, is that in Australia, federal elections um, are, are administered under under a federal law uh, rather than in, under state laws which might vary between the states or amongst the states. The state elections um, are governed by state laws and there there are minor differences in the way in which the different Australian states administer their elections. But you don't have this sort of like mosaic of, of different electoral laws for federal elections in Australia that you do in the United States. And I think that also makes it much easier for people to vote. People move to a different state. Um, they don't. They they um, they they still they don't have to get their head around a new set, a different set of laws. You know, postal mm-hmm. voting will operate in the same way. Absentee voting will operate in the same way. The ballot papers will look the same. They'll be counted in the same way. Uh, so it makes for sort of greater uniformity of the of the polity. I think. Um, and and that's again expresses this more majoritarian democratic view and and the fact that we've got in many ways a more centralized country you know our federation um, our states don't have quite the same degree of autonomy in Australia as they do in the United States. Um, that's interesting and you also write about that this is a major split from British traditions. I'm wondering if you can explain this a little bit and especially how the British model might um, comparative. Like- Oh, sorry. Um, well, just so I suppose the question then is: is why did Australia develop this um, impartial electoral administration um, as early as it did? Well, it it, it came in, it was first developed in South Australia in um, in in the nineteenth century when the when the state was or the colony at that stage was very sparsely settled. So the question is: they're going to have elections. Who's going to run them? You know, is it going to be the local policeman? Um, you know, there, there were no lo- like there was very little administrative infrastructure in the colony of South Australia at that point, and so the solution that the man um, who, Boothby, who was told he had to run the election, the solution he came up with was to employ public servants on on in a temporary way to actually administer the election and also. To maintain the electoral rolls, so instead of an elector having to register every year to keep themselves on the roll, which had been the, the practice um, in in Britain, uh, or and um, that the the rolls were were permanent and, and had to be maintained um, when people shifted, you know, the the roll had to be updated with their new address. They had to be shifted to a new electorate, uh, and so you ended up with with a small body of permanently employed public servants concerned with administering elections. Um, that system was developed in the colony of South Australia, as I said, and so when 
Australia, the Australian colonies federated um, in 1901, and they and the the people who'd been running the elections in the different colonies all got together and said, "How can we do it?" Uh, they thought the South. They took the South Australian model over, basically. Um, whereas what has previously happened is sometimes, for example, there'll be local administrative officers and running, and every now and again, they, they have the job to administer the elections, you know, but it's not part of their permanent position. But Britain now has um, a permanent um, electoral commission that runs their elections, very similar to what Australia does. It's, I mean, I think here, from our point of view, the US looks like a real outlier with um, the fact that it's part of, it's people who are elected officials who are also running elections you know, rather than appointed officials running the elections, you know, so that those people have a, a stake in the outcome. Um, Can you perhaps then comment a bit more about the uh, how Australia's system is bureaucratic in that sense? Because it's well, it seems so it's to... bureaucratic because it's rules based, you mm-hmm. know, and 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 it's it's rules based with public servants, you know, bureaucrats administering the rules. But the rules, the laws, if you like, are made by the parliament. Um, you know, so um, in that sense, you know, it's a government bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the really interesting things that came through in the book was that you describe um, Australian elections as having a real holiday spirit. Um, it's, it's quite a contrast from what we've seen recently in the US. So can you talk a little bit more about this holiday spirit that surrounds elections in Australia? Yeah, well, firstly, I mentioned this before, you know, we have our elections on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. Saturday, when they were first introduced, Saturdays were half holidays. A lot of people worked Saturday mornings, but they had the afternoon off, they'd go to sport or whatever. Now, you know, we people don't work quite such long hours. They are held on a Saturday. They are very often in public buildings um, like Local or community buildings like the local school, local um, community hall. They're not like in a government office. Now, what that means is that the the voluntary fundraising committees um, attached to that school or community hall or whatever see election days as an opportunity for fundraising activity, um, you know, from the beginning selling, you know, women selling cakes and jams and maybe having urns and cups of tea refreshments available for people who travelled a reasonable distance in the country to, to, to get to a, a polling booth. More recently, particularly at schools, um, there's been people selling sizzled sausages, you know, barbecue, barbecued sausages uh, in, a, in a bread roll. And this has led to the term democracy sausage, um, Becoming, you know, very common in Australia, the 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 sizzled sausage or the sausage sizzle has been at our polling booths probably for the last, you know, two or three decades. But about ten years ago, um, a group of people, in a sense, put all this on social media. You know, because the question is, you wake up, we don't, we don't, you you've got a choice about what polling booth you go to to vote in Australia, and like for example, where I live, there would be four polling booths within walking distance. So I wake up Saturday morning, I think, well, which one of these is going to have, haven't had my breakfast, I'll go and vote and I'll pick up a a sizzled sausage in a roll from the breakfast and and maybe a cup of coffee. Which which of the polling booths has got it? And so 
they they put they set up a social media site where you could which would give you that information. Sorry. Oh no, I, had, I just was to ask you: Do you make sure you always have the sausage sizzle? Well, I don't like eat sausages so, like that, so oh, I, that's fair enough. Me. I would have had my breakfast, but this has been very popular <laughs> amongst young people. Um, yeah. So you know, a lot of them will now because it's become a big thing. Then some of them they'll have cupcakes. There'll be vegan options. There'll be halal options. Um, there'll be often there might be a coffee. Um, you know, they've got coffee machines there. You know, it's a fundraiser for and um, for the local school. So uh, that's given this sort of festive air. I think you know that. Where am I going to? I'm going to vote and have my democracy sausage, and then people post pictures of themselves on Instagram eating their democracy sausage. So that's been that's why I called the book from secret ballot to democracy sausage because it sort of introduced this slight. Well, it's captured something about a sort of lightheartedness about about our voting i mean people take it seriously but you know it's it it's we don't have to queue for hours it's a sort of fun outing you know if you want it to be people go with their kids like they're doing their shopping or on the way to the beach or wherever it's and because there's lots and lots of polling booths you know you don't have to queue for very long at all you know and and now this is just you know picked up this sort of given it a, a slight a bit more of a fun element um, and just picking up on what you said about people taking their kids along with them, um, you know, you're right that it sort of teaches children about their adult civic responsibilities by going along to the polling booth with their family. Can you talk more about this, um, The you know, how it's sort of got this educative purpose for children and families and, yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, another thing I used to ask my students is what's your first political memory? And... For some, not for quite a lot, it would be going along to vote with their parents or perhaps watching on Saturday night, you know, watching um, the the election results on the television, perhaps at a, at, a, at a Saturday night election party with other families. Uh, and particularly because the, the students might often, the kids might often be going to their local school. So they, you know, voting in their, you know, it's in their classroom. You know, it's, it's sort of... Um, it it make it sort of knits voting into the fabric of everyday life, if you like, rather than say going to um, a, a, a government run office where and in Europe, I mean David Malouf writes about this, you know, where there may be police outside of the office or something, you know, where where there's a a sense of the state's power. This feels like it's quite continuous with your everyday life and I think that that's that's really good and that's an interesting point so picking up this notion of egalitarianism um and inclusion one of the really interesting stories that came through in your book was the history of women's voting in Australia um for example women in South Australia you write got the vote in 1894 and also the right to run for parliament can you just talk a little bit more about um, how Australian women were enfranchised. Yes, well, there was a lot of support for women getting the vote amongst um, sort of progressive liberal parliamentarians in, in the late 19th century in the various colonies. Um, at that stage, we, we have these bicameral um, legislatures. So the upper house, the legislative councils, were usually, were were 
elected on much more restricted franchises than the lower house. The lower house was had manhood suffrage, no property qualifications, but there were property qualifications for the upper house. So what was happening was that bills to give women the vote were being passed in the in the lower houses, and then they were being rejected in the upper houses. And this was happening time and time again. Uh, so in South Australia um, in 1894, there was another one of these bills was going up. Um, and it looked like there was perhaps it would get through the the um, upper house, but you know the conservatives were you know bringing out their old their old well worn arguments. You know women don't want the vote. Women are, are too emotional. Women are only going to vote the way their their husbands do anyway. You know, um, or politics is too demeaning. We don't want our um, the, our women sullied by this dirty business. You know, there was a whole range of contradictory arguments that kept being brought out. Then somebody had the bright idea that they'd amend it, one of the Conservatives, they'd amend the legislation by adding that women would also get the right to stand for Parliament. Now, none of the um, suffragists arguing for women getting the vote had, had asked for this. And the person moving the amendment thought it was such a ridiculous idea that the legislation would get thrown out. But actually, it didn't. It was an own goal, um, and the legislation went through, and women got the right to stand for parliament. In fact, it took a while before this, you know, much much happened with that. But um, what that meant was that South Australia had women had the vote. Uh, so when the colonies are federating, um, in and there was a if there was there was a plebiscite in each of the colonies about whether or not to accept the new constitution. There was a sort of understanding that women would be given the vote in the new federation because if they hadn't have been, if they had, that understanding hadn't have been there, the South Australian South Australian women were voting in this plebiscite, this referenda, um, so they would have um, voted against it and then the federation wouldn't have happened. So... So that, that's if you like. So when um, the the new you know the new franchise laws are being debated, women uh, Australian women were given the right to vote in the federation, and so that's 19, 1902, that legislation. Now that in the states they didn't, um, as I said before, the states' electoral laws are different, um, and. Uh, so, like, they were a bit slower, but I think Victoria didn't get it till about 1908, 1909, but a hell of a lot earlier than than, uh, than the United Kingdom. Yeah, it was quite interesting and very impressive. Um, it was something I didn't know about Australian history, certainly. Now, just in contrast, can you comment a bit about the disenfranchisement of Aboriginal Australians in relation to voting? Yes, this is... Um, quite a shameful story in many ways. Um, the, as I said, the colonies had their own electoral laws. Uh, in Victoria, South Australia and New South Wales, there was nothing which precluded Aboriginal people um, from being on the electoral roll if they wanted to go up and register. At that stage, registering was not compulsory. Um, so uh, they, many of them were able to vote and, and, and uh, many did. Um, they were not able to vote in Western Australia or in Queensland. 
um, and Tasmania believed it didn't have any Aboriginal people. Um, it did have a lot of people of, of mixed descent who still identified as Aboriginal in various ways, but uh, it didn't have anything in its, its um, it, it didn't regard this as an issue. Now, when the Commonwealth, the Franchise Bill was being debated, the government put up a bill which did not exclude Aboriginal people from voting. Uh, however, it couldn't get it through the parliament and it had to put something in which excluded Aboriginal people from voting. In, there was this complication. The, constitu the constitution had um, a clause which said that anybody who had the vote in the colonies could not be um, excluded from voting uh, in the new Commonwealth. Um, and that was interpreted to mean that if you were already on the roll, if, as an Aboriginal person, if you were already on the colonial roll, then you would be able to vote um, in the, you know, you'd be able to be on the federal roll and you'd be able to vote. But they wouldn't take any new um, Aboriginal people onto the electoral roll. Um, and the push for this came essentially from uh, parliamentarians in Western Australia and in Queensland, where there was still um, a very active frontier moving into um, Aboriginal land and territory and society. I mean, look, it's it's very complicated. There was also worries um, about uh, because there was a lot of Aboriginal people were were working on pastoral properties um, in a way that enabled them to maintain much of their traditional ways of living, um, that the squatters would just line them all up and get them to vote conservative. So Labor was worried about that. Um, they didn't actually, there was areas where they didn't actually know how many Aboriginal people were there. Many of them didn't speak English anyway, so how were they going to be able to effectively be able to exercise the vote? Um, it was complicated, but it was, but it, it, as I said, there was quite a bit of initial support for them being able to vote, but then they they um, they were excluded, and and um, you know this took a long time to be put right. Can you talk about when they actually did get the vote eventually? Well, they get the vote. Look again, this is a complicated story. Um, men and women who fought in the war in the Second World War. Um, got the vote much earlier, but essentially it was about 1963 um, and it was not at that stage made compulsory for them to vote. Uh, that didn't happen till, 19, till, till the 1980s. Um, that was not an attempt to disenfranchise them. It was actually a response to the fact that there was quite a lot of Aboriginal people who didn't really want to vote. Um, they didn't. So, you know, it was a sort of a transitional arrangement in in some ways. So, but it's late, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, what I'd say. And I was going to say, the other, the other right. thing is that actually what, what happened was because they weren't allowed to vote at the federal level, there were many who, and, and, and this was only people who were of full Aboriginal descent who were not allowed to vote. People of mixed descent were allowed to vote, but that wasn't the way people like, Aboriginal people necessarily identified themselves. So it meant that a lot of people who actually could have voted and weren't legally unable to vote didn't, either because they didn't want to, they didn't see themselves as non-Aboriginal people, um, or because electoral officers were pretty racist in the way in which they um, 
administered the law. Um, and, and like in a state like Victoria, Aboriginal people could vote. They were never told, they were never, there was never a law against them voting, but because they couldn't vote at the federal level, uh, they didn't, as people don't necessarily always distinguish that much between, you know, federal and state legislation. So there was ways, informal ways as well, in which um, people of Indigenous descent who actually did have the right to vote didn't vote. The uh, one other point that we haven't talked about that um, in a way comes a bit earlier, which is that we have also compulsory registration in Australia, and that I think is quite unusual. It's almost as unusual as compulsory voting. That is, once you're over 18, if you're a citizen, it is compulsory for you to be on the electoral roll, and then when you're on the electoral roll, it's compulsory for you to vote. Um, so that means, you know, that, that that also adds to the majoritarianism because it's not just the people on, like in many countries, it's a voluntary act to get yourself onto the electoral roll, and then it's a voluntary act to vote. So there's a sort of double voluntariness. But for us, it's compulsory to be on the electoral roll. And recently, legislation's been introduced because, you know, obviously when people shift, they um, have to be registered in a different electorate and they fall off the roll. Um, and that's always been a problem. And the electoral office used to run what were called habitation reviews. People would go and knock on every door to find out, you know, whether people would still lived where they said they lived and and re-register and, you know, put them back on the roll. But um, in the last decade or so, the Australian Electoral Office can access address information from other government agencies. Like people do, you know, when they're registered, re-registering, you know, if they shift, they re-register their you know, their licence or when they're registering their cars, they give the address so that there are other government agencies that have more updated information. And the, and so now the electoral roll gets automatically updated once people are on it when they shift. So, again, it's something which is making make the government making it as easy as possible for people to, to be, you know, to, to vote. Um, that's really interesting and I think it really brings together, you know, many of the points and advantages about Australia's compulsory voting system um, and especially also in relation to its compulsory registration. Now, Judith, I've taken up a lot of your time. Just before you go, can I ask what are you working on now? Well, um, earlier in this year I wrote a quarterly essay for um, publisher called Black Ink. We've got this uh, Black Ink brings out an, four essays a year, which are about twenty-five thousand to thirty thousand words. And this was caught was on um, basically coal and climate, and this, why Australia's got itself into the position it has in terms of climate change. It was called "Resource Cursed: Coal, Climate, and Australia's Future." So I finished that about the middle of the year. Then we've been in lockdown since the pandemic. Um, I'm at the moment putting together a collection of essays. So, and then I'm going to um, start work on a biography of a of a political activist from the 1970s. Wow, they sound very busy, um, and that will be something to look forward to, certainly. Um, now, I'm we've come to the end of our time. Um, I'm Jane Richards, and I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Judith Brett about her latest book, From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage. How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. It's published by Text Publishing in 2019. It's available in all the usual places that you buy your books and also as an ebook.
You've been listening to the New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Judith, for your time. Thank you for having me.